is White Sox Weekly, your two-hour all-access pass to everything White Sox. Drive in the air, deep to right, it is gone! This is a presentation of the ESPN 1000 Hard Rock Casino White Sox Network. Now here's your host, Connor McKnight. Good afternoon, welcome into White Sox Weekly here on ESPN Chicago and the Hard Rock Casino White Sox Radio Network. I'm Carmen DeFalco, doing the fill-in for Connor today for the very first time in 2023. They finally went to the way back of the bullpen, and they said, bring us the crafty right-hander. And so here I am to talk about my beloved White Sox. It's been a tough, trying year. Uh, but we now look ahead, uh, really, to the offseason and to 2024 and to the White Sox, hopefully fixing some things, getting better, and maybe quickly flipping this and being back in contention in the next year or two. And you might think, well, that's crazy considering the season they're coming off of, but there still is some talent on this big league roster. This minor league system has been reloaded a little bit because of the midseason trades. And maybe, just maybe, if Chris Getz and Josh Barfield and Brian Bannister and Gene Watson and all the other people that he's going to have surrounding him and the support staff he has around him, maybe, just maybe, if they're smart and clever this offseason, the White Sox can quickly get back into contention. But let's face it, a lot of things have to change and a lot of things have to get fixed. Uh, you can't simply run this back and blame things on injury or just a season that went awry. You're still going to have some holes to fill. And the White Sox across the board had a pretty bad season. Pitching, offense, defense, you really can't point to one thing that was exceptional. Now, you could say Luis Robert was exceptional, and I would agree, but as a whole, one through nine, or as a pitching staff, uh, or what they do across the diamond defensively, none of the metrics look good. None of it looked particularly good uh, to the eye test either. You know, the Sox have the third fewest runs in all of baseball. They have a slightly higher than average K percentage. That's not a good thing, obviously, in this situation. But you couple that with the lowest walk percentage in all of MLB, and it leads to a rather anemic offense that is obviously prone to bouts of really, really struggling. They've got the 26th lowest isolated power and the 28th lowest OPS versus right-handed pitching. It's still an area, when we talk about left-handed pop and left-handed productivity, it's still an area where the White Sox have really struggled. They were hoping Andrew Benintendi would address and answer some of those problems, but unfortunately the power just hasn't been there. The White Sox have hit just four left-on-left home runs this season. That's fourth fewest in MLB. They didn't hit any in 2022, so they're tied for the fewest in MLB over the last two seasons. Now, they are tied with the Toronto Blue Jays, and there's not too much wrong with the Blue Jays, obviously, Uh, but... It's still not a statistic that you want to embrace, and it's got to be one that they're circling, figuring out where are we going to get more dangerous left-handed power, and can we occasionally get great left-on-left production? They just haven't had a ton of it. Defensively, I think most Sox fans would not be surprised one bit to find that they are near the bottom of the league in most of the advanced metrics. Again, this is another pretty simple eye test. Uh, We don't have to delve too deep into that. And then you look at the pitching, and this is one area where the White Sox organization historically achieves, maybe overachieves, and does quite well. Not this year, for a lot of reasons. But 26th in ERA, 
24th in XFIP, second worst walk rate in all of baseball. And while Dylan Cease uh, obviously is, I still think has the potential to be a great pitcher in this league. Like he was obviously last year. He was second in Cy Young. I'm pretty sure he was my preseason pick to be Cy Young Award winner this year. I think maybe I put the whammy on him. That's my bad, Dylan. I will not predict you to win Cy Young next year. But for the first time since his rookie year, he posted a sub ERA, a sub 100 ERA plus. That's not a good thing. You want to be uh, above 100. Now, it wasn't terrible. It was 96, so just 4%, you know, sort of below what you'd expect uh, league average wise. But that was a number that had trended up ever since his rookie season. I think from about 111 to 112 to a very, very good number last year when he, again, finished second in the Cy Young Award race in the American League. So for the first time since his rookie year, he was below 100. Here's part of the problem. No player in MLB has walked more batters than Dylan Cease the last two seasons, and it's something that's got to cleaned up. Yeah, got has to get cleaned up, excuse me. He does uh, miss bats. He's got to learn how to put guys away quicker and more efficiently. It will lead to a reduced pitch load. It will lead to uh, increased innings pitched, longer duration in games. And if he's really going to take that next step to be year in and year out one of the best players in baseball, one of the best pitchers in baseball, I do think at some point that has got to get cleaned up. But, man, are there a lot of questions about this rotation going forward. What is Kopech's long-term future? Giolito's gone. Uh, are there some young guys that are finally ready to be called up that are going to have an impact on 2024? I'll talk about some of those things a little bit later on the show today when we get into uh, some of the conversation with Connor McKnight and when we talk to Scott Merkin from MLB.com. But those are big, important issues. Where are the White Sox going to turn? Where are they going to go to find some innings eaters and to find guys that are going to help stabilize this starting rotation because, again, you just look at the metrics and the numbers, uh, and they were not good this year. So offense, defense, pitching. Besides that, there's not too much work to do. Uh, Unfortunately, when you have a team that's going to lose near 100 games, you know this is what we're talking about. There are a lot of issues. It's not one singular thing, and it's not just one easy position that needs to be fixed. You feel great about what you have in center field. Uh, you obviously have options at DH. The White Sox are always going to have a lot of options at DH. But other than that, where do you feel comfortable? I don't know that even the most optimistic White Sox fan can say there are too many spots on this diamond where they feel totally comfortable and they feel like guys are totally locked into positions going forward. So we'll continue to discuss that today as we work through the show. We're inching towards the end of a very disappointing 2023 big league season for the White Sox. Hopefully it's onward and upward, but we'll kind of look ahead a little bit at what we hope happens this fall and this winter to try to shore some things up and make the White Sox more, make the White Sox more relevant uh, and better and more fun to watch in 2024 and beyond. Jonathan Hood's going to join us coming up. My good friend from ESPN Chicago, part of the Cap and Hood Morning Show, a lifelong Southsider and White Sox fan. I mentioned Connor McKnight and Scott Merkin, so we'll get some real... Uh, expert views on the way the season went, how it went so wrong, and what they might do to make things better going forward. So we got a lot of great stuff to talk about, uh, as we always do, leading up to White Sox action uh, a little bit later on. White Sox fans, thank you for all your support this season, and be here tomorrow for Fan Appreciation Day. Join us as we celebrate you and for your opportunity to receive a variety of great items throughout the game. 
To purchase tickets, just visit whitesocks.com slash promos. We're just getting this bad boy started. I'm Carmen DeFalco sitting in for Connor this week. It is White Sox Weekly, and we'll be right back on ESPN Chicago and the Hard Rock Casino White Sox Radio Network. Greeny 10 to noon weekdays, ESPN Chicago. Welcome back inside White Sox Weekly on the Hard Rock Casino White Sox Radio Network. Join us tomorrow for our last Family Sunday presented by Coca-Cola at Guaranteed Rate Field. Bring your family out to the ballpark for a day full of fun. Tickets start at just 10 bucks. Visit whitesocks.com slash Sunday to purchase your tickets today. I'm Carmen DeFalco sitting in this week, pleased to be joined by fellow White Sox fan and co-host of the Cap and Hood Morning Show here on ESPN Chicago, Jonathan Hood. Hoodie? Thank you for having me, sir. No, thank you for coming. Thank you for coming. You know, the season's coming to an end, Carm, and so it's just not what we thought it was going to be, right? No, no, no. I, I uh, Listen, uh, we can't sugarcoat it, right? I, I sort of need this season to come to an end. We need a little bit of a reset here. I think the White Sox know that. They've, they've shown you that already with some of their actions uh, mid-year and going into this offseason. It, it wasn't what any of us expected, and, and it, it's so far the other way. Uh, it's almost a little stunning. While I didn't pick them to be a playoff team in the in the preseason prediction that we did, Hoodie, but I also didn't expect them to lose 100 games or close to it. So it's been a tough year. It has been. Uh, I think that when you start selling off parts in the middle of the season at the uh, deadline, it just gave you a culture shock as a Sox fan. Like, no matter what you thought of the ball club, it's just that names that you knew yeah. and now no longer here with the team. And so I know that Chris Getz has not officially said it, but – I think that here uh, in the offseason, there's going to be more moves made. I'm, you just cannot just put spackle on this whole White Sox team. It's got to be either adding on or being able to reset the ball club. And I'm interested to find out in the offseason which direction the White Sox will go. Yeah, I think there are too many holes to say that you know we can just sort of, like you said, spackle it and we'll be ready. I mean, this is like you're putting up new drywall here. That's what it feels yeah. like, doesn't it? And I know they talk about injuries a lot and just staying healthy, but I think it's more than that. I think there are still too many holes that need to be addressed, too many deficiencies, uh, or at least a number of them that need to be addressed if they're really going to try to uh, remain somewhat competitive. Do they have individual pieces that are good? Of course they do. Sure. Uh, but I, I think you're right. I think that there's there are a lot of things that need to be cleaned up and that need to be fixed if they're going to be anything close even to a 500 team that can at least keep it interesting in August and September for Sox fans next year. Carmel, when I look at it with the White Sox, here's how I look at the White Sox, my favorite team. It's the team that means the most to me in Chicago. Yeah. There's Bears fans, there's Hawks fans, there's Bulls fans, but because I'm a lifelong Southsider, the Sox means so much. So I look at the Sox based on the Sox versus the National League Central, the Sox versus the American League, the Sox versus baseball. And you look at all the rosters, look at all the pitching, all the hitting, and then you try to figure out who the cornerstones are for each team. Mm -hmm. The Atlanta Braves are the best team, if not one of the best teams in Major League Baseball. One through nine, they have a murderer's row. We grew up watching Bobby Cox's teams, and then we see Snitker's teams. It's like everyone can be able to hit. Every one of them. Solid pitching, good enough to be able to maybe, maybe get to the World Series. So I compare the Sox to that, and I say, well, how far are the Sox from that? And so that's your answer. Same thing in the American League, right? You look at the teams like the Baltimore Orioles that went through the doldrums of Mm. losing 100-plus games several times. But look how they were able to grow. Added what they need to add and then look at them now. How far they'll go, I don't know. But that's what it comes down to. When you look at this team, it's Luis Robert. Then there's a separation with Tim Anderson. And then there's the rest of everyone else. 
that's really what it is because everyone talks about Robert, even with the season the Sox have had. People are so interested in seeing what Robert's uh, next act is going right. to be. Like, what? Like, can he even get to another level? I mean, he made a huge jump this year. Yeah, I mean, man. the power numbers have been incredible. He stayed, uh, knock on wood, you know, up until this last week, they've shut him down, but he stayed relatively healthy. I mean, he's the one guy, and, and I think a lot of us sort of predicted this even a couple of years ago. Like, when you look at all the tools, everything that he's capable of doing, he does appear to be the one, like, really solid building block that you could say, hey, we're set in center field. We got a guy that can play gold glove caliber defense, and we have a truly impactful offensive player. Not perfect. The the strikeout to walk thing is still like way out of whack. And if he did learn to be slightly more patient at the plate, just think what that would do for his overall offensive game. Because a player like Luis Robert shouldn't have a, a 315, 316, or 320 on base percentage. He's capable of so much more. And maybe he can still work that out. I mean, I, that's the one deficiency. Uh, in the game, but the, the power's real uh, to all fields. Plate coverage is real. I mean, like, there's so much to like about him. But yes. outside of that positionally, Hoodie, I like, I don't know. I like Andrew Vaughn, but Andrew Vaughn's basically been about a league average hitter, you know, in his career so far. He's not bad. He's certainly not great. So, Aloy has, you well, know, Vaughn's beige. As, as what yeah, is, I mean, like, like, like sells. So, uh, I mean, but it, uh, I'm not knocking him. But just, no, uh, but I see what you're saying. It's, it's beige. It's like he doesn't. It doesn't offend. It's yeah. not spectacular. It's just like good. He's got an opportunity now to get a number of at bats. He's out there every day. He doesn't have to play behind anybody. He can play the DH spot or be the first baseman. It's fine. But it's guys like him and Benintendi and players like that. It's like, you know, if the Sox are good, we're not complaining about Benintendi and the lack of power numbers. No, we're not. no. If they had a lineup that it was even close to what you were talking about, Atlanta, it doesn't matter. You know, you're right about that. Like, you'll take Benintendi's, you know, pretty good bat-to-ball skills and ability to get on base – and and you wouldn't you you wouldn't think about it. It wouldn't be a problem. But when you're relying on him, when you brought him in to hopefully provide some of that left-handed power, and then what he's going to finish the year with five home runs. I mean that that's what can't happen, right? Yeah. You know that. So like I get your point. Those are the things that need to be cleaned up. Um, who else are you like genuinely excited about? Would you say going forward, whether it's big league roster, somebody in the minors. Outside of Robert, who I think gets all of our juices going as White Sox fans, is there anybody else that you can even pinpoint it at this point, Hoodie, that like you're really excited about? I would like well, excited as far as just curious. It would just be curious more so than anything else, right? Like, is Sosa a guy or not? Mm. Is he or not? Like I, I need to know that. Like Zach Remillard. Yeah. Ah, Remillard. Ah. It's, it's like a nineteen seventies, like, you know, buddy cop. You know, it's like a like, you know who you need, boy, in a big pinch? Remillard. To me, it sounds like some sort of a fancy sauce you'd get in a French restaurant. I'm going to have that steak with Remillard sauce on top. You know, no. I really enjoy the Remillard. I mean, you talk about a good, a good meal. Yeah. When they put the Remillard in oh, it, oh, forget it, Odie. With oh, the crab the Remillard sauce mm, on top. Chef's yeah. kitsch. Are you kidding best. me? Absolutely. Ah, Remillard. Or, or something you see on Cozy TV, Remillard. He's got his gut. It's Remillard. It does sound like some sort of 1970s. <laughs> Like Western that our grandfathers would have watched, right? Yeah. You know what I like, son? I like to sit here with my can of foul staff and just enjoy a good episode of Remillard. This is Remillard. Pa- pa- Papa, what are you watching? This is Remillard. It son, is? Son. Wow, it's barely in color, Dad. He, he runs around the Old West. He's a lawman in the Old West. That's like a guy like that, right? I'm just curious about young players like that because the, the Andersons, the Andrews, the Moncadas, the Alloys, we know. 
So I'm just uh, this is why this is so big for Chris Getz because the minor league system still is bereft of quality talent to be excited about. They have to continue to build in that direction. If that's the case, if that's the case, Carm, we would have seen those guys on yeah. this level here in the well, September call-ups. And, and I think you know you talked about what they did at the deadline. I mean, at least they did. I think inject a little more life into that minor league system. It was really the only, it was obviously the only option they had considering the way. The first half of the season went. I mean, hell for the the way the first month of the season went. I think we all knew it was sort of trending in that direction. So at least they brought in a little bit more talent that way. You know, the, you had a high draft pick uh, this last year. You're going to have another high draft pick, I believe. As uh, as we're here now, it's the fourth pick in the draft next year. So you do hope that you know you want to be Atlanta, you want to be Baltimore. That's what you got to hit. I mean, like you talked about Baltimore and all the struggles and all the high draft picks. Well, then. They've been successful in the guys that they have fired on. They're they're loaded with talent, and they're doing something right developmentally, uh, developmentally in that system. And they're coming up and they're contributing. So yes. you got to hit on these guys. No, no offense to Nick Madrigal, but like that's that can't be the pick fourth overall, whatever it was. Andrew Vaughn third overall, and again, Vaughn's a, a fine enough that's player. Fine. You call him beige, like he's a fine enough player, but. You need more. You need Adley Rushman. Yes. You need Gunnar Henderson. You need Grayson Rodriguez. Like that. Like that's what has to happen when you're picking somewhere in those top three, four, five picks. So you have to get those picks right if this is really going to work. I guess what I'm trying to figure out, Carmen, is the philosophy of the White Sox for the next five years. If Chris Getz is in place as a general manager, so what do you stand for? Mm. Who are you? Like I, like, I can't define what White Sox baseball is at this point in a positive way because we all know what the one loss record is. I'm just trying to figure out, like, are you going to go young as those teams we just mentioned to be able to get back up there? Or are you going to throw money at the situation and just try to plug holes? To me, it's, it's at the point where you have to determine what you have in your minor league system and whether that they can play for you or not. I mean, that, that's something big. I, now, a name that I failed to mention is Crochet, right? Yeah. Garrett Crochet. Like, I like, I can know what his future is, or what is he? I, I know We know the stuff, but what is his role? That's my question. God. Is that, your, I, is, I, I, is that a starter? Is that a future closer? What, what does he do? That's a great question. I mean, I don't Do they know the answer to that? This is why a lot of plates are spinning right now. Right. It's this big juggling act. Remillard. Remillard. He used to he also used to juggle the plates. But 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 I just well he did that with the saloon doors. On the other side of the saloon doors. The swinging saloon doors. He used to do that right in those bars. I remember it very well. But that that's a guy, right? Yeah. With a talent, strong arm. I just don't know. That's why we have what's Kopech's future? Like all a lot of these guys. What's Kopech's future? Honesty compels me to say that I think it was premature for Pedro Grafal to say, don't worry, he'll be back in rotation in 24. Mm. Well, that's a projection, but you don't know. Because mm-hmm. I don't know what the offseason will bring. Right. Maybe Getz brings more pitching in, starting pitching in, and says, all right, you could be like a setup guy. Because we've seen uh, Michael really struggle at yeah. times, or he is really battling out there. Yeah. He's a pool of sweat out there trying to do what he can, and it just – as straight as an arrow. Yeah. Like the the co- control and command, Carm, yeah. has not been great for him. And yeah. so I thought it was premature for Pedro to say, well, he's in the bullpen now, hurt. Now, okay, but in 24, he'll be the starter. Well, I don't know that. And I don't know if that's the right thing to do. We'll see. Do you think this was just one of those off years for Dylan Cease? Look, even really good players, good pitchers, have down years occasionally. 
Uh, is that all this was? Was this just a little blip, and can he get much closer and will he look much more like the pitcher he was in 2023 coming up next year? What do you think? I thought some of the other starting pitchers, along with Cease, kind of lost focus. As it's one thing that you have four and five out innings because you have leaky defense at times or you're behind in the ball game for whatever reason. But I think that Cease can be able to bounce back um, because we've seen him with good stuff. Look, it's funny. We've seen the full Monty with him, right? Yeah. Struggling to get the ball across the plate, not trusting his stuff. I remember saying at the time, and I think you said as well with Yerk, is like, you know, he's the only guy in the ballpark that doesn't know he's got good stuff. Right. Yeah. Right. And because it's about confidence, yeah. being out there getting starts. And then he was able to be right on the precipice of the Cy Young Award. And then he kind of has regressed this year. Mm-hmm. So I look for a bounce back. I know the league knows who he is, but at the same time, why can't he have a bounce back year? I'm I'm with you. Yeah. Like the stuff's too good, yeah. right? And if they could find some way to teach, I don't know how you teach this, but I mean, and I know we asked early in the year. We asked, um, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about it. Uh, I think it was opening day you know, with Ethan Katz about the walk issue. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and he says he doesn't like to talk to his pitchers about that, negative thoughts, things like that. At some point, it's got to be addressed, whether you avoid saying cut back on the walks. Like, I get it. A coach is going to say, I'm never going to tell one of my guys, hey, you have to cut back on the walks. But then at some point, a pitcher's got to be taught or has got to learn how to put guys away when you have the opportunity. And that's where Cease has struggled. That's where he's failed. That's where pitch counts get elevated. That's where outings become shorter. No pitcher in baseball has walked more batters the last two years than Dylan Cease. And, yeah, his strikeout numbers will always be good. He's one of just, I think, three White Sox now ever to have three consecutive 200 strikeout seasons. But when you're also walking 80 guys a year, that is a little bit of a problem. It is. It is. But that's, that can be controlled. And also, if you got a good lead, you don't have to worry about those walks. You hate the leadoff walk that's going to come around to score. What's the percentage? Oh, my Coming God. To score. It's pretty it high. It's terrible. Yeah, the leadoff walk you, it usually comes around to score. He can work on that. The other guy also, by the way, it's weird. When I go to the Sox game, I always get the Tukey Toussaint tickets. I don't I, know how that works. I don't I know, but <laughs> I get that. how you end up with Tukey every time is beyond me. But. <laughs> I get that. Like, every time I go, it's like, ah, the Sox game, great food, great nice. atmosphere. Oh, Tukey and, Toussaint. And let's see. Oh, Tukey's on the mound again. <laughs> again, Tukey Toussaint. Tukey's giving them some gritty outings in the, this yes. year. I'll give them credit. You know, like, you come into a bad situation, right, on a team that is just totally underachieved and – so much drama that went on, and Tukey's battling and giving them. Uh, he's giving them. He's giving them some some good stuff over the, the the back half of the year. What do you think, Carm? Like long man? Yeah, yeah, long man. Probably. I think that's exactly what it what it looks like when you're good. I mean, like, right? When yes, you, when you're good. Yeah, exactly. When you when yeah. you when you're like trying to establish long man. Yes. Yeah, when you try to establish yourself, it's like all right, Tukey, yeah. we need to you, you know, opener. I don't know. I mean, who, you know, long man opener, something like that. You <laughs> I don't know. know about that. I don't know. I mean, what? There, maybe there's a role for him somewhere in there. There's more questions and answers on this on this baseball team, though. That's the whole thing. Like, yeah. post Grandal. Oh no, I'm know, with you. you know. I'm totally with you. As we sit here now, hoodie, there are more questions than answers. That's what happens when you lose a hundred, right? Yep. And and you don't and you didn't expect it. It's one thing if you're early teens, Houston, or your Baltimore that you talked about a couple of years ago. Um, like, you know, uh, Cubs and when Theo first got here, 12 or 13, whatever it was like, that's one thing mm-hmm. you sort of understand. Not everybody's going to like it. I get it. Fan bases don't like it. The league might not like it. Theo thinks he created a monster. Um, and maybe he did, but at least you'd understand that this is part of a plan. But I think you nailed it when you're expected 
or at least a lot of people expected you, and internally you expected to still be in a championship window, and you go out and, you know, fail to get 70 wins, like, that's a problem. And there are more questions than answers when you, and you're changing your front office. Like, there is no doubt about it. There are more questions than answers going into this offseason and maybe even into next year. However, I could take solace in the fact that the Sox have Jesse Barfield in the... In the uh, well, Jesse's... Uh, they got, they've, got, they've got Jesse Barfield's uh, offspring. Yes, he in, does. Uh, thank goodness. I yes. say it's Jesse Barfield, though. I want father and son in the front That's office. fantastic. I do uh, like Jesse Barfield's hello ball. Oh, my God, yeah. And then Josh hung around for a little while in, yeah. the, in, the, in the league. I do like that the, some of the additions that Getz has made. I, while I was critical of maybe the, in, the decision to just stay internal, I do like that they've gone out and they've mm-hmm. found uh, – and getting a guy like Barfield who's been part of a, what is this very successful uh, organization out in Arizona now yeah. under Mike Hazen I think is a good thing. So uh, I think a few of those moves are good, and I don't know. Hopefully it comes together. Uh, but it's going to be an interesting offseason, maybe a long one, but an interesting one for sure. We'll see what they do. It anyway. will. I look forward to seeing what this offseason is going to bring because that will tell us, Carm. Are you a seller in the winter? Are you adding on? Because you can't stand still at yeah. this point in time. Yeah. Tim Anderson, part of the ball club. Well, that, that's a whole other a huge question going into the offseason. That's, that's, right. that's a side podcast. Huge. That is, that's a whole other. We need to do a whole other. That's an offseason hot stove. That yes. We need to do, Baseball, so. relationships, all that. It's a, it actually is a Tamron Hall show. That's yeah, what exactly. That's what we'd be doing. Yeah. Before, uh, before we go too much further, real quick here, let's pause 10 seconds here on the Hard Rock Casino White Sox radio network to allow stations to identify themselves. Live from the old National Bank State Street Studio, this is WMVP WSAG HD2 Chicago, a good karma brand's radio station. Uh, all right, Hoodie, I really appreciate you jumping on and spending some time with us on this Saturday. It's going to be an interesting offseason, as we've discussed, for our beloved White Sox. Better days ahead, my friend, right? Yes. Can only go up from here, I think. That's that's the hope. That's the hope. That's the hope. Hoodie, thanks, brother. All right. Go, Sox. Thanks to Jonathan Hood. And uh, we'll be coming right back. More to come on this week's edition of White Sox Weekly. We're going to talk to Scott Merkin from MLB.com. We'll talk to Connor McKnight. we got lots more baseball to discuss. You're listening to White Sox Weekly on ESPN Chicago and the Hard Rock Casino White Sox Radio Network. Welcome back to White Sox Weekly. I'm Carmen DeFalco in for Connor McKnight. We're here on ESPN Chicago and the Hard Rock Casino White Sox Radio Network. Well, something we've discussed a little bit are the additions to the front office that the White Sox made. And while I haven't, full disclosure, said too many nice things about the disappointing season and the overall direction at times of my beloved White Sox, I do like what Chris Getz is doing to add to his front office, going outside the organization, finding different sets of eyes from winning organizations to help fix what's gone wrong and where they've missed. They brought Josh Barfield here to be the new assistant general manager. I love that because you think about some of the things that he has his fingerprints on in Arizona, a team that improved a little bit last year and then took a big step this year and is going to be a playoff team. Uh, Arizona's got young guys like Corbin Carroll and Gabriel Moreno that they have in their system that they've developed. Guys like Marte and Christian Walker, came to their system from other organizations, but they were very young, and they helped both of them blossom, especially Cattell Marte. Then you look at Brian Bannister, who's coming in to be the senior advisor to pitching. Similar jobs he's had in Boston, a winning franchise, was there when they won their last World Series, and San Francisco, again, a team that most often competes, was in the playoffs two years ago, was a 500 team and just missed last year. When he was in Boston in three of the four years, 
and I don't know exactly how much he necessarily had to do with this, but he was part of what they were doing with their pitching infrastructure. 16, 17, and 18, three of the four years that Bannister's in Boston, their team ERA was never outside of the top three in the American League. Guys like Rick Porcello and Eduardo Rodriguez blossoming and pitching some of the best that they have in their careers. In San Francisco, guys like Logan Webb coming along and turning into one of the frontline starters in the National League. Or Alex Cobb, who's arguably had his best couple of seasons with the Giants when Bannister was there with that organization. I think those things are important. Gene Watson is another person they've brought in to help. He comes from Kansas City. Now, you can say there's a little bit too much Kansas City. That's not a franchise like Boston or San Francisco. But Gene Watson's been around a long, long time. Earlier, he was on the Home Stand podcast by the Kansas City Royals, and he talked about his life in baseball, how he's gotten to where he is, and some of the things he's accomplished. And he talked about his transition into scouting over the years with the Royals. Yeah, I um, when I moved home, we had our son in June of 93. I moved home. And I started a select program back when there were no 17, 18 year old programs. Okay. This is, you know, you early. You just started one. I, I started one. UT Arlington actually gave me their old uniforms. We were called the Syntex Mavericks. And I had a few players, Bobby Witt Jr.'s dad actually helped okay. me as well. Uh, and I had a few players help me fund it. So I, I went and got all the 15, 16s that were kind of below the radar, hidden uh, talents. And uh, we went 47 and 13. And that Christmas Eve, the Astros called and offered me an associate scouting position, which is basically working for free for three years. Oh, so, I mean, so I basically invested. I would get in my car on Tuesdays and Fridays and just drive and hit every high school and college game I could within 100 miles of the house. And it was pretty taxing on the finances for a young family, but uh, I, would, I wouldn't change one thing about Gene, it. Gene, that's, in- that's insane. Yeah, I wouldn't change one thing. You're a hard it. worker. I try to be. I can tell from <laughs> that. And in your head, were you, were you thinking when you started that, this is going to lead to a job in, in baseball? Or what were you thinking? You were just thinking, I got to do this? I was hoping. Yeah, I was hoping. I was very visible. I would always be at University of Texas, Texas A&M Baylor. And then on Tuesday nights, I would hit some of the smaller high schools. Uh, and then in, in November of 96, uh, the Padres called, Eddie Epstein from the Padres called and offered me a professional scouting job, which at the time was new uh, to the game. Eddie was one of the pioneers of analytics. So I've, I've never worked one day without analytics. Yeah. And, and so the analytics and the pro side, it was basically still forming. So I was on the front end of a lot of that. And it, that 97 to 02 were really the really difficult years because I was a young guy in major league ballparks and to a lot of the veteran scouts, I was, I was taking one of their, spots and so it was it was hard you you could have stuck me in the middle of the pacific ocean and said find your way back and it probably would have been easier for me wow but uh all part of the growing process yeah yeah for sure talks about that uh, grind of scouting i think a lot of the scouts across sports have similar stories and here's watson talking about judging who a player currently is versus who that player can be down the road you're, you're evaluating the five tools hit hit for power run field and throw yep. and you you rank those tools in order by position around the diamond but then you're looking at something that a little adjustment that might take place with the player 
that can make him better. And those those go into the scouting reports as well as uh, the data and the analytics, especially with pitching and the information that we have now with pitching on pitch shape and pitch design, targeting, pitch sequencing, more on the pitching side than, than, than the position player side. But, but it's just looking at the player and age for level is a big deal. Okay. What, what level are they playing at for the age and trying to envision you know what the ceiling of that player is what we can do to make him better but also like if you look around the league there's a thousand examples of guys that were in one place that it just wasn't working yeah it was ballpark it was lineup it was they were asking him to do something in peak pitch sequencing or on the rubber that you recognize those things and you say hey if we can do this we can make them better and that's being a small market team that's really the beauty of my position is trying to find that buy low guy and other organizations that will come over and and with our structure and our information and our people and our culture, uh, giving them a chance to ultimately reach their, their ultimate ceiling in the game. That's from earlier this summer when Gene Watson was still with Kansas City. He is now going to be the director of player personnel for Chris Getz and the White Sox, just one of the three additions along with Josh Barfield and Brian Bannister that should help Again, eyes from outside the organization. It should help in some of the decision-making and some of the processes that the White Sox put into place this offseason and going forward. Hey, Sox fans, catch all the action from a private diamond suite in 2024. Learn more about the different suite sizes and how you can host your closest friends and family with customizable food and beverage options next season. For more info, just visit whitesox.com slash suites or call or text 312-674-1000. That's 312-674-1000. We've got more to come, so don't go anywhere. We're leading you up to the pregame show. Connor McKnight will be on the call tonight for White Sox and Padres. So I'm Carmen DeFalco sitting uh, sitting in for Connor this week on White Sox Weekly on ESPN Chicago and the Hard Rock Casino White Sox Radio Network. The ESPN Chicago Triple Play AM, FM, HD, and app. Welcome back inside White Sox Weekly here on ESPN Chicago and the Hard Rock Casino White Sox Radio Network. I'm Carmen DeFalco sitting in for Connor McKnight, who just happens to be my next guest. And uh, I always appreciate Connor hopping on. We love talking to him on the flagship, on the Carmen and Yurko show. He joins us weekly during the baseball season, and it's nice to have him uh, on his own show right now. Connor, how are you, buddy? Our scene opens. Oh, wait. Wrong. <laughs> wrong show? Wrong show. Wrong. This is my show. This yes. is my... Hi, Carm. Yeah. How you doing, man? Hey, Thanks buddy. You're a prince is what you are. No, listen, you're a busy man. You've got, I know, three straight... You had three uh, straight days here, and you've got this one here on Saturday night uh, white, uh, doing um, doing the play-by-play. So uh, I, I say quite often that... Uh, Connor is not long for White Sox pre and post. Somebody's going to come a calling because he is quite exceptional at play by play. And I always enjoy listening. And even through a very tough, trying season, I know it's exciting for you to be able to be uh, behind the mic actually calling the game because I think it is your greatest passion probably at this point. Yeah, it, it is. And and thanks for the kind words. I appreciate that. I've got um, I've got really great mentors and teachers in Darren Jackson and Len Casper and Jason Benetti and Steve Stone. And I'm not just saying that because DJ's sitting behind me <laughs> and hanging out here in the booth. Um, but it, it really has been a, an incredible uh, journey here over the last three years, getting to do major league play-by-play, doing a little on radio, doing a little on TV. Um, I I just had a really cool moment. I I shared it with White Sox fans on the television broadcast, uh, and it's kind of my first chance to talk about it here on White Sox Weekly, Carm. 
I don't. Have you been to Fenway Park? I assume you're Once. a well-traveled man. You're a man of <laughs> man of many coasts. And ports, as they say, but you've been to Fenway, right? I have been only once in it. I got to tell you, it was a long time ago, and this is how long ago it was. I got to see a Pedro pitch oh, in wow. Fenway, yeah, which was pretty. Was it prime Pedro? Yeah, it was. It was the oh. summer of two thousand. Yeah. Oh, I hate. Oh, yeah, it was like oh. prime Pedro. He faced. Um, I saw him pitch on a Saturday afternoon in Fenway against the Texas Rangers. Uh, if memory serves, he struck out 10 and in seven innings. That was a good Rangers lineup back then. You remember, like it was still a 2000 you know, Rangers. It was like Juan gone. And like they yeah. were, uh, I want to say a young Michael young, probably on that team. It like the, uh, Blaylock, I think was there. Like it was a good Ranger lineup and he just made them look silly. I mean, it, yeah, it was a Gabe treat. Kaplers on that team. I believe Yvonne you're right. Rodriguez, Rafael yeah. Palmero. You're a little early for Hank Blaylock. Okay. And I didn't remember that because I thought Hank Blaylock was going to be the next thing since, uh, yeah, I, I thought it was going to be Scott Rowland. Uh, but Kenny Rogers is on that <laughs> team. Esteban Loiza, which is just a name I like to say whenever of, I get a chance. Of course. Because why not? Yeah, because <laughs> why not? Considering what's happened. That's that's impressive, man. Yeah. That, that seeing Prime Pedro at Fenway. But it was I a long time you. ago. Like, the, the they didn't even have the, when I was there, it was so long ago, Connor, they didn't even have the seats on the monster. So I oh, need to, yeah. I need to get back there. And I, I had seen on your social media that it was your maiden voyage there. And you just kind of have to soak it all in, don't you? You, you really do. Um, and that's, you know, DJ and I walked around the ballpark for I don't know, probably about a half an hour before that first game. And it was, I, I know it sounds a little cheesy, but you watch it on television and, and me growing up, right? Like I'm, I'm in high school and into college while the Red Sox are doing their, you know, four days in October run, you know, the, the idiots and the, the 07 thing. I mean, it was, you know, I, you saw so many, God, when I was a kid in college and Sunday night baseball was on, it was almost always the Red Sox and Yankees. Yeah. And you were always up until two in the morning because Kevin Euclid refused to swing the bat and just took <laughs> so many pitches. And it just, these games lasted forever. So you spent a lot of time looking at Fenway Park on your television. And to see it all in person really was kind of a, you know, a, a hit the soul moment for my baseball fandom. Um, a couple of things I learned about that ballpark, which you don't, I don't think you'd know otherwise if you haven't been there. The Green Monster is shorter in person than it looks in real life but it's also so much closer yes. the right field corner as it you know kind of bends around pesky pole is is so much deeper than i thought it would be and chris sale in that first game of the series spent all afternoon working the outside portion of right-handed hitters and every next white Sox flied out to alex verdugo in right and you know during one of the breaks in between innings dj looked at me and just kind of said that's why you got to have a really good right fielder at fenway park mm. and verdugo's tracking everything down you know just nothing looked difficult um, the other thing I, you know, I, I saw about Fenway, too, is the, the, the renovations, the remakes, and, and they've got some new stuff there now. There's like a concert hall um, oh, out really? there behind right field corner um, that's, that's its own entity but also has entrance into the ballpark. There's kind of a beer garden. Kind of like the White Sox have put up here in the 500 level, but obviously, you know, shaped same setup, different area, different shape because ballparks are different shapes. Yeah. Um, out there in center field, which is really cool, the 502 foot seat where Ted Williams parked that homer in right field. Mm -hmm. That's believe it or not, Carm. That's actually not 502 feet. That's one billion five hundred million feet no one can hit a ball that far absolutely no one so you sit in that seat and your brain just explodes thinking about how even a deadpool lefty like williams could get that thing out there it yeah. was it was truly incredible 
Um, and then I'll tell you this one, too, because I think you'll like it, and I think other people will. First night at the ballpark at Fenway when the White Sox were out there, I had uh, I was I was excited. I was a little giddy, uh, and like a, like a kid, I forgot my jacket. Mm-hmm. I get very cold in the broadcast booth. I get cold very quickly, and it was a cold, rainy day in Boston. So I realized I'd forgotten my jacket, and I walked back to the hotel, not too far away, but like a five ten minute walk. Walked back to the park. I got my or to the hotel. I got my jacket, and as I'm walking back from the hotel to Fenway, I'm about to cross Lansdowne Street. Now, Lansdowne is the one behind green, the Green Monster, and it's closed on game day. Yes. And there's this dad and a kid, probably like he's eight years old, maybe nine years old or something like that. And they're walking across the street just in front of me. As they're crossing the street, an Uber is trying to drive down Lansdowne Street. Now, all this is happening very slowly. No one's in danger here. But the kid is looking up at the Green Monster, oh, mouth agape, just like, oh, my God, I'm here. And, you know, at Fenway, he's like, oh. And the dad goes, hey, watch out, son. And the kid realizes he sees the Uber driver. The Uber driver sees the kid. The Uber driver sees the dad, right? And the kid goes, like every nine-year-old does, I'm sorry. And the dad, clearly from Boston, goes, don't you say sorry to him. It's his fault. This street's closed. Don't you say sorry to him. Like while staring dead in the Uber driver's eyes, trying to murder him with Boston ire. It was It was incredible. There were other notes. There were other uh, adjectives in that oh, sentence. Oh, I can imagine. From the Boston father, none of yeah. which are appropriate here on White Sox <laughs> Weekly, but that was my Boston trip with the White Sox. And they won that series. And too. they it won the great. series. Yeah, that's not bad. You got to experience some cool things while you were there. That park is sm- it's, it's so old, and this is what I remember about being in there. It's small. And, like, capacity-wise, yeah. I don't even know what it is capacity-wise, but... You know, I, I, I'm assuming it's somewhere north of 32, 33, maybe 35,000. It's not like it's an 18,000-seat stadium. So capacity-wise, they can put plenty of people in there. But it just, the way those old stadiums were built, it feels small, if that yes. makes any sense, right? Yeah, it's got a very small footprint. They yes. did a great job of building up and out yeah. over the street. So you, know, you walk where Lansdowne, and, and um, I forget what they renamed Yawkey, but the, you walk down, and the, it kind of overhangs you. Um, a little bit like, like Wrigley Field does now, and yeah. you, know, you compare the two, obviously, because of the age of the ballpark. Um, I want to say... There's another neighborhoody park that does that, and not Target Field. It's if I if I can think of it, I'll come back to it. But um, it's got that really good feel to it. It is odd though, um, because I don't know where you sat when you were there, but there are so many seats that don't face the game. They're mm. twisted because they're that old, old, you know. So you've got to turn your head over your shoulder to watch the baseball game because you're essentially facing center field as opposed to the action in the infield. It's pretty wild. Um, And the Red Sox obviously have had a tough year like our beloved White Sox. Not quite as bad, but uh, it was nice to at least see the White Sox win that series. Uh, Am I crazy for still being so hung up uh, just because the White Sox are playing the Padres this weekend? Am I crazy for still being so hung up on Fernando Tatis Jr., Connor? I I think a little bit sure. I, when I go back and I've I've read about those the trade a couple of times. Shoot, I think I was covering the White Sox. No, I was. I was doing pre and post my my first year, right? Because yeah. that trade is in 2016. Yeah. Fernando Tatis Jr. did not have the prospect write ups that he did in the next six months. Now, some would tell you that the last two months of play, I think he played a little winter league ball or maybe, um, maybe Arizona, no, not Arizona fall league. Um, some would tell you, wow, he looks like a different player in these last two months leading up to the trade for James Shields. Um, than he did prior to this, but 
when we talk about trades um, for veterans like that, where you go, ah, you get a you get an A ball lottery card or something like that, right? That's that's a lot what that was, a lot like what that was. And the Padres won their lottery draw. You know, I mean, yeah. he's he's very quickly turned into one of the best defensive right fielders in baseball. Um, hope if he stays healthy, I, yeah. I think he'll be a really impactful force for them. I, I get it; it makes sense. Those are the trades you rue. Yeah. But if you look back at the process over thing, you know, I I don't mind trades, and maybe this one isn't exactly that. Maybe the Kimbrel trade is more that going for it is important. Flags fly forever, uh, and prospects are suspect. So I kind of I get. I get going for it when you can. I totally agree on the Kimbrel trade. I mean, that's another one that didn't work out, but it doesn't it doesn't hurt or stick in my no. crown nearly no. as much. Yeah. No. Um, what do you think Pedro Grafal maybe learned about himself, this job, and how he can get better going into next year after this tumultuous season? You know, I, I think at a certain point, and I, I couldn't tell you exactly when it is, or when it was, rather, during the season, but at a certain point, I think Pedro kind of, uh, and the team as a whole, kind of went back to basics with this ball club to a certain degree. You know, not for everybody, um, and not in every instance, but I think it's reflected a little bit in the struggle of a season that Oscar Colas has had out in right field, right? Mm. He's been up, he's been down. Um, he's been up again and then been down yeah. uh, again here late. And in a season like this, this is otherwise, otherwise a spot where you'd like to see a guy like Oscar, you know, not many major league experience, uh, not a lot of major league experience, fairly young player. You know, he needs the reps, but... You know, Pedro has said very clearly uh, and very forcefully that he's not ready for the reps up here in, in his estimation. And that's been reflected some in the play. And I was a little bit surprised to hear Pedro be as um, uh, arduous and, and vociferous about his comments or in his comments about Colas, because often you'll you'll see the opposite. You know, you'll see a little bit of uh, a little protection, a little bit of maybe even coddling from right. other places. But you know this he has had his chances he he unfortunately did not succeed and the issues that they've been trying to work through um weren't being solved so they think that you know triple a charlotte is the place to go ahead and solve those things for him to work on those things and i i wouldn't be surprised if a similar process has kind of gone on at different points with different players which obviously hasn't reached the level that the the Colas uh, situation and, and promotions and, and options kind of did. But I think that's where things reach. And I, I think then if the question is, what do you think Pedro has learned? Uh, maybe it, it's how to get to that decision point a little earlier with a player for good or ill, right? Mm -hmm. Because as much as you talk about, as much as we've just talked about the Colas thing, it's you should not, one should not forget the situation that occurred with Luis Robert Jr. early on in the season. Right. That conversation was had. Yeah. It was very much a uh, uh, come to the river moment, you know, to sit down and kumbaya. And, and this whole, you know, this was a, a very, a real conversation between the two of them. And, and all that has, you know, come out of it has been an all-star season. Yeah. The absolute breakout of Luis Robert Jr., a stellar season defensively. One in which he played a career-high 145 games. Got to 30, 30, and 20, like no White Sox player has ever done, 35, 35, and 20. And that's in, in large part because Pedro Grifol was able to identify and alter the course of, of whatever was the issue at that point. And then Luis Robert worked his ass off in order yeah. to get the rest of it done, you know? I mean, that's, that also matters here. 
Can he... I talked about this with Hoodie a little earlier, too. Can he find a way to uh, cut down on the strikeouts a little and add some walks? Or is is a player like Luis Robert, who even with, you know, if, if we really were going to nitpick, we'd say, well, that is an issue. But yeah. he still had a phenomenal offensive season, and he's so impactful, as you just laid out. Can he learn or find a way to really go next level by just getting on base a little bit more, by being a little bit more patient and taking a few more walks and cutting down on the strikeouts a little bit? I think I think that's the question to ask of Luis Robert. And it's funny you mention it the way you did. Darren and I were just talking about the difference between uh, taking walks and pitch selection at the plate, right? And I think for Robert, you're always going to have a pretty high strikeout guy who derives most of his value through his slugging percentage and speed, right? The, mm-hmm. the one is a kind of a function of the other. I think mm-hmm. he'll get doubles where other guys get singles, you know, that kind of thing yeah. for a little while here anyway. But I do think that by working on, and, and we saw it in spurts this year. DJ has pointed out on the broadcast a couple of times, boy, Robert is so good, and look at the numbers he's put up, but he's never really looked all the way locked in for a good long stretch. There's about 10, 15 games there, I want to say, in June, where he was, I mean, you could not get him out, and everything he swung at was was a dinger, that kind of thing. It was it was, it was, was there. But I think by by kind of refining that pitch selection, that, that identification of what you can drive versus what you can't, mm. you're going to have better contact. You're going to have more contact with the speed he's got and the power he's got. I think that results in better on base percent or uh, better uh, batting averages, better slugging percentages, and then as you know, Carm, the the more you slug in this league, the less you get pitched to, yeah. and you're still going to have strikeouts because guys have nasty sliders that they can land on the outside corner, and it just sucks to be a hitter right now. But you're going to work walks out of that too because guys are going to work around you a little bit. I think that's where you kind of focus, as opposed to let's walk more. It's let's take those three pitches a game that you swing at that you don't have a chance of hitting and and make that two pitches a game. Because I I think the difference there for a player with the talent Robert has is going to be pretty noticeable. All right, last thing, and then I'll let you go. We know you've got to call the game coming up here. Uh, Sox and Padres, the penultimate game of the 2023 season here on the South Side tonight. But real quick, as we get to the end of the year, the rules changes. Uh, it sure feels and seems like they had the exact desired effect. I think they were all good. I, I don't maybe love the idea of telling a team you can't shift of, about you know sort of forcing them to play defense a certain way, but I think all in all, the rules changes really helped. What do you think after this first year? I agree. I, I think baseball changed for the better in this last season with the rules changes, even though, like you, I, I didn't agree with the banning of the shift. I thought we should have got there somewhat differently. Um, I don't like the runner at second in extra innings, but I understand why Major League Baseball is is doing it, even if they're maybe pushing it a little bit harder than, mm. than I think they need to. It's like, yeah, we bought the car, all right? You don't have to sell me the floor mats. It's fine. I'm walking out of here with the $30,000 purchase, okay? But I, I do think that this game has changed uh, for for the better here, right? We, we look back through the game times, and, and even in the slogs, right, even in a tough season, I think the White Sox are kind of a, an example here. It's been a very difficult season for the Sox. You know, we're, we're staring down the barrel of 100 losses, 
but there aren't a lot of game times that are in the 340s, 350s, which can which yeah. can aggra- aggravate a fan base yeah. and, and can you know put undue stress on players in situations. I mean, wear cleats for four and a half hours. Carm, you've to, it hurts. Yeah, Your it hamstrings does. are going to kill you. But I do think that where where one thing that I'd I'd like to I'm interested to see where baseball is going next is the thing the rules changes did not affect at all is the strikeout yeah. rate. Yep. We are still seeing strikeouts rise in baseball, and I don't know that there's any rules change save for moving the mound back four feet or something. I'm talking. Four, I'm not talking six inches or a foot like they did in the Atlantic League a couple of mm-hmm. years ago. I'm talking about a significant difference there. And I, you know, I don't. And I don't even think that in and of itself would immediately change or or really even immediately be able to affect Major League Baseball because you're not doing that in Major League Baseball year after next, right? I, I don't know how we change the strikeout rate. I do think it's an issue, but... What about limiting pitching staffs, like in terms I, of... The number I think that's of a good start. I think that's a good start. I don't think that drops at you know eight or nine percent or anything like that. But I would be absolutely an advocate of seeing you know twelve man pitching staffs on the roster as opposed to thirteen. I think that definitely changes the makeup. But we're realizing pretty quickly that teams are just as good at making high strikeout three inning guys as they had been making you know high strikeout one inning guys. You know yeah. we're seeing this happen in and around baseball. Shoot, the White Sox are evidence of it as well, right? With you know, say what you will about the ERA of Aaron Bummer, but they've stretched him out to multiple innings, and he can get punch outs. Gregory Santos mm-hmm. can too. You look at the entire Rays bullpen. There's a really good piece on MLB Savant, MLB.com, about the bullpen the Rays have had in this last month. They were bad for a while, changed some things, and they've got an ungodly mm-hmm. strikeout rate with guys going multiple innings here in the last month of the season. It, it is pitching is the thing that's always going to be ahead of hitting, right? It's it's the arms race in this game, quite literally. Yep. And I don't know that you're ever going to sufficiently drop this back to the 1980s in terms of contact rate. So we do have to fix things around the other edges of this game. And I think that, I think they've done a really good job in doing it. Connor, great stuff, buddy. Uh, have fun on the call tonight. We appreciate it, and we'll talk soon, pal. Thanks so much, Connor. Appreciate you. Hey, Sox fans, 2024 ticket plans are available now. Be on the south side for the biggest matchups and exciting new promotions throughout the season, including opening day on March 28th. Ticket plans include great benefits such as ticket exchange program, special events, savings on single games, and much more. For more info, visit whitesox.com slash 2024. There's Connor McKnight. He will be on the call with DJ coming up in just a little bit. You're listening to White Sox Weekly on ESPN Chicago and the Hard Rock Casino White Sox Radio Network. Follow Chicago's Home for Sports on Instagram at ESPN underscore Chicago. Welcome back inside White Sox Weekly on ESPN Chicago and the Hard Rock Casino White Sox Radio Network. I'm Carmen DeFelco sitting in for Connor. Connor's on the call tonight. Just two games to go. Sox and Padres coming up here on your home for White Sox baseball. 6-10 is the first pitch. Pleased to be joined right now from MLB.com by Scott Merkin, one of my favorite baseball guests to always uh, chat with. And, Scotty, thank you for the time. How are you as we uh, finally arrive towards the end of what has been a long trying season for the White Sox? Yeah, it's it's not been a good one, that's for sure. It's beyond... uh... It's beyond the level of unexpectedly bad at this point. It's just been a bad season, and I think everyone in the organization is ready to move forward and see what they can do to 
you know, do the best they can to turn this around as, as quickly as they can. How has the vibe been here, like, in the last six to eight weeks, Scotty, after all of the drama, some of the things that were said, some of the things that you guys had reported on? Um, you know, it, it's, it's, it, it felt like it's definitely kind of gone off the rails, but what has the vibe of that clubhouse been like? Has it been any better from maybe where it was early in the season? Yeah, I think the vibe is, is fine. I just think, you know, nothing against anyone who's playing their butts off right now, playing their tail off. And, you know, there's some young guys getting some chances down there who, you know, can show for, you know, where they feel they, what they can do for next year, even giving, you know, kind of a six week, uh, two month trial. But, you know, they traded away six veteran hurlers and Jake Berger at the deadline. So that's just going to change the look of a team that already wasn't very good mm. to begin with. Right. So, I mean, it's, it's, Obviously, I don't think you can go by results. You maybe can go by, you know, some losses have looked worse than others. And I don't know if you want to say necessarily lifeless, but just kind of maybe where they lost focus a little bit once it got out of hand. But, you know, I don't think when they made the trades uh, at the deadline that they expected that this was going to be a team that was, you know, going to do anything right. can great they... in, the, in, the, in the win column. You know, I mean, you, you, you moved, you know, I mean, what, uh, two starters and four relievers, I think it ended up being, and then you're – second most potent hitter in terms of power in, in the, on the team. So that's going to be a change that's going to affect your team that already was in a, a bad way. Yeah. Scott, does this team have an issue with a lack of leadership, and can they somehow add that, and will it be, in a way, a priority for them this offseason? Yeah, I don't know if it has a, a lack of leadership because, yeah, I mean, you know, like Abreu was a leader, and, and he, you know, leadership is different forms. Abreu was a leader because, you know, he went to the post every day. You know, he did not like, you know, this is a guy who ran full force into 100 Dozier and, you know, that's what, 250 <laughs> pounds running into 235 pounds and played the next day. Yeah. That's just how he was wired. He wasn't a turn the table over, you know, yell at the clubhouse type of guy. He was a guy who had an impact on younger guys. And I think you saw a little bit of that from Luis Robert this year. You know, it was a priority to Luis Robert. And I think this is telling on where he is in his career. Everyone knows how talented he is. But, you know, I, he, he likes the 38 home runs. He likes the 36 doubles, the 75 extra base hits. He's going to should be in the running for a gold glove in center field. But he kept talking about that 150-game mark mm-hmm. because he had never played above 98 in a season. Now, he did play, I think, 56 of 60 in the pandemic-shortened campaign of 20. But it was a goal to him to to be out there every day. And he got to 145 and then hurt his knee sliding into second on a stolen base Sunday in Boston. And that, you know, canceled the last week for him. But... I think availability and talent, obviously. I mean, if you have a guy who's not very good who's playing 150 games, that probably isn't going to turn out well for you. But for your leaders, availability is as big a thing as anything else. You know, I mean, you need to see the guys out there. Now, some guys get hurt, and it, some guys get hurt in freak accidents and on the field and that kind of thing. You know, they slide wrong or they run into a wall or something like that. But I just think that's the biggest thing. I don't know if you necessarily need a leader, but I think to, to, to round up this longish answer, the thing that I've always noticed with the Sox is they, they were always able to, you know, identify talent. This guy's really good, and they get the talent. But aside from 05, 08, and then I guess 20 and 21, it was it was tough for them to build teams. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think Chris Getz and Josh Barfield, and we talked to Brian Bannister recently, that's what, you know, and, and the whole front office and the coaching staff and Pedro Rafal that's what they're looking for. They're trying to build a team, and that's where I think they've come up short in recent days. I'm glad you went there then, and, and you mentioned those names. Uh, Gene Watson also going to be another addition. Right, but right, I, yeah, yeah. A guy like Barfield is interesting to me. Really, I mean, Barfield and Bannister are coming from 
good organizations. A guy like Barfield's interesting, having learned under, under Mike Hazen here the last handful of years out in Arizona, right. one of Theo's guys. Like, how important is that, Scott? And uh, I'm glad that Chris Getz is sort of looking for different sets of eyeballs and maybe different ideas from outside the organization. Right. Here's the interesting to me, thing to me is that, you know, just focusing on Barfield and Bannister is that they have their outside voices, but they have connections to Chris, and so he knows them already. And they also have Chicago slash White Sox connections. Yeah. You know, Brian was talking about what a special time it was, you know, play, growing up and playing in the kids' games when his dad was with the White Sox. You know, Floyd was a uh, – he was part of maybe the best second half, best half of baseball by any White Sox pitching staff in history. You know, I think Hoyt, Dotson, and Bannister went 42-6 and six combined, mm-hmm. somewhere in that range in the second half of 1983. And then uh, Josh Barfield grew up, you know, I mean, or he knew about the White Sox from – that was his dad's team. You know, Jesse Barfield grew up in Joliet, was a star at Joliet Central, left when he was 17 when he was drafted, but, you know, used to go to Sox games. So they, they know the passion of the fan base. They know how much they want to win, and they know the, the specialness of the organization, and they've mentioned that in their kind of, you know, first interviews about how, you know, I mean, Josh went from a, an organization that where he did a great job, you know, as part of people developing talent like Corbin Carroll and Alec Thomas, who we're familiar with, and you know, a Lawler and just a lot of the young guys in Arizona and came here. And I think they liked that challenge, but I think they also realized that the challenge could lead to a big payoff if they do this thing right. So yeah, it's, it's great to go outside the organization and not be as insular, but I think there's also a, a Chicago slash White Sox connection to some of the new hires. And then Gene Watson, also a very well-respected guy who's known Pedro for a long time. You know, I think for, I think Pedro said like 13 years. So there's connection, but it's also bringing outside voices in, which is which is needed at this point. I think that's important. You have very good point. Scott Merkin from MLB.com is our guest on White Sox Weekly. Earlier this week, you guys got a chance to catch up with Michael Kopech. What's Kopech's future look like? Uh, maybe, maybe just in the short term, like even for next year. I mean, what's the role going to look like, Scott? Yeah, I think they they view him as a starter. And Brian Bannister talked about you know he had him in Boston, and you know, they've already had some conversations and looking forward. Brian Bannister said like that's kind of his sweet spot is taking a guy who maybe isn't quite at the point where he is or where he needs to be or wants to get back to the point where he was and kind of getting him there. So I think Kopech, Kopech first of all, is a, is, a, is a great guy. He's really kind of an introspective young man who, who can kind of lay things out and really doesn't hide anything. You know, I mean, when he says, you know, he'll tell you I'm struggling or this has been tough or this has been, you know, I, it's been a rough season to get through. But he's talked about something that Aaron Bummer, talked to me about earlier this year and they've talked to each other about that if you can't learn through adversity and both of them have had kind of tough seasons this year Kopex is more the second half than than anything and a really rough second half yeah. then you can't learn at all so i think he's ready to ready to go ready to take that step forward and you know i mean let's be honest he he, he has shown signs of being a talent starter but as we sit here right now as we're doing this interview they have two starters set in that rotation right. i'm not taking anything away from a guy like tuki tucson who's had a chance to show himself this year. But in terms of just guys that you know 100% are in that rotation, it's Dylan Cease and Michael Kopech. And if you want to contend, as they have talked about to date, uh, even in the AL Central, which, let's be honest, has not been a great division the last three years, and this year it was really bad, um, you need pitching. You cannot get by without pitching. So they're going to need Kopech to come back, and I think they have. I think he wants to learn. He wants to get better. Now I think I know that, and he's got the right – tools in terms of the people around it to help them get to that point. 
the last 200 games or so for uh, Tim Anderson uh, have been a far cry from where he was back in 2021. How does T.A., you know, where is he, I guess, just what, mentally, his mindset, and how does he kind of get back to the player he was a couple of years ago, Scotty? Yeah, I, I've known Tim since he was drafted, right? So I, I, I know, I think, a little bit about Tim, and I think he believes that this is kind of an outlier. I don't, I don't think his 22 season was too far off from what, what he had. It's just he had some injuries, and then he had his season ended in, like, August, right? Yeah, Early yeah, August yeah. with the uh, finger issue. And I, I really do believe that this season is kind of an outlier for him. He got hurt, you know, in April. I believe it was maybe the second road series of the year in Minnesota. And I think there was a little more to that injury that's been that's been let on, and I think he developed probably, I know he's talked about that he's developed maybe some bad habits mechanic-wise, trying to compensate for that. And I think a healthy Tim Anderson, I'm not saying he's going to go back and win a batting title in 2024, but I, I really do believe that this is an outlier for him. Now, he's had, you know, I think he's committed 15 errors and he's had some issues at short, but I still believe he can play short. And I, I'm leaning towards that the Sox will pick up that, $14 million option. I think it's $14 million option and a $1 million buyout. They do have Colson Montgomery, who's playing in the AFL right now, as their you know their number one prospect, number 17 overall, according to MLB Pipeline. So he's, you know, prospect-wise, the real thing. But, you know, I, I think it's it's a chance you can take on Tim. Now, you know, Chris Getz has been asked about that a couple times, and Tim's been asked about that more than a couple times, and they're all kind of taking a, you know, we have to discuss it, wait and see. Tim views it as, it's not something I can really control, so you know I just got to keep playing. Hmm. But I, I do believe that he can get back to a, a level of high competitiveness, if not, you know, the all-star starting shortstop level that he was at before. That'll be interesting to follow this offseason. One more thing about the offseason going forward, and then we'll let you go, Scotty. Um, in terms of you know free agency, you know, you mentioned I thought you made a great point about uh, the rotation. I mean, basically, you you, you kind of know only 40% of what right. your starting rotation is right. going to look like. You always need a six starter anyway. Let's face it. Like, will they go out? Um, and Blake Snell's going to be a no-go for them, but a guy like Aaron Nola, a guy like Jordan Montgomery, um, Sonny Gray may be a no-go for them too, but I don't know. Is there a name that you'd look at uh, in free agency, pending free agent here, where you'd say, yeah, the White Sox might be in on this guy or that guy because they're going to have to fill out that rotation at some point. Well, it's kind, of, it's kind of two things. I think, I don't know if they'll go for a top of the rotation sort of guy, but I think they will add pitching. I think they have to, right? Yeah. I know they like some of their younger guys, some of the guys they got in some of the trades of the deadline, but, you know, will they be ready at the outset? You got to have, you know, the pitchers to go at the outset. And, you know, they added a guy, Luis Patino, in, in trades, and he started uh, yeah. against the Diamondbacks. He could be someone, but, you know, they did, if you look at, uh, the situation years ago with Zach Wheeler, they they made him the highest offer. It was over a hundred million dollars. He chose to go pitch, you know, closer to home in Philadelphia. So they have been in on that. They were, you know, they've been in on pitches that level. I don't know if they're going to go to that level on a pitcher, but I I do think they will spend because they almost have to. And I think the same is the case for the bullpen. You know, even if Liam Hendricks somehow comes back in some way with the White Sox, he's such an asset to this organization. He's not going to be able to pitch until at the earliest the end of next year. So you're going to need a closer, right? And right. I think we've seen from teams that are contending and teams that are struggling to hang on in contention, whether you have a lot of leverage options, you got to have that guy, right? Even if, even if you're not a, a pure contender, you got to have that closer guy. You got to have someone who can finish it off. So there, there's a lot of, that's what's interesting is when you hear the Sox talk about contending, then you present to them like, well, you have a lot of spots to fill. So, you know, I, I think 
right now it's a lot of talk, and it, yeah. I, I think we're really not going to know much until the GM meetings, I believe, are 7th through the 9th of November in uh, in Arizona, and I think that'll start showing the direction the White Sox are going. So yeah. we'll, we'll see. I mean, but they, they're going to have to add pieces because there's just too many spots that seem open at this point. Totally agree with you. Hoodie and I were talking about that earlier in the show, actually. Scotty, thanks as always, man. It's good catching up. We'll talk to you during the offseason. Sounds good, Carmen. Take care. Thanks, bud. That's Scott Merkin from MLB.com. Bring your family out to the ballpark tomorrow with a family pack presented by ExxonMobil. Your family will get one ticket, hot dog, drink, and chips to select games starting at $19 per ticket. Plus, with every purchase, you have a chance to win mobile gasoline for a year. For tickets, visit WhiteSox.com slash family. I'm Carmen DeFalco in for Connor. You're listening to White Sox Weekly on ESPN Chicago and the Hard Rock Casino White Sox Radio Network. White Sox Weekly Saturdays on ESPN Chicago. Welcome back inside White Sox Weekly here on ESPN Chicago and the Hard Rock Casino White Sox Radio Network. Uh, final weekend series of the year, final series, two games to go. White Sox and Padres on the south side tonight. Connor's going to be on the call with DJ, so I'm Carmen DeFalco sitting in for Connor McKnight this week. We actually talked to Connor a little bit earlier in the show. Hopefully you heard that. We kind of wrapped things up talking about the rules changes this year and uh, how they really have, uh, I think, they've hit a home run here. They've reached the desired effect for Major League Baseball. The time of the games are much shorter. There's more action. The bigger bases I don't mind. I think it encourages guys to be in action more on the bases. It encourages guys to run more. I think with some of the great young speedy athletes in this game, it has led to exciting stuff. Uh, You look at Ellie De La Cruz's impact on the bases or Corbin Carroll's impact on the bases or Ronald Acuna's impact on the bases. I'm trying to remember the stat now. I saw it earlier in the week during one of the Cubs-Braves games. It was that middle game. He swiped bag 70, and I think he became – the first and only player in baseball history to have a, a 30 home run. I mean, he's hell, he's got more than 40, but I think he was like the first 30, 70. That would mean there's been no 40, 70 players uh, ever in baseball history. That's incredible. He picked up the bag. I mean, he knew what he had just accomplished. They did keep the bag for him. They swapped it out. They were ready for that. That was in extras when the Braves won the, the middle game of that series on. That would have been Wednesday night of this week. I mean, he picked up the bag, held it up. The crowd was going nuts. I think... Uh, having some of these rules changes and having young dynamic players in the game like that have really, really helped. Uh, so, yeah, I could, I could probably sit here and and argue a little bit and say I don't love the idea that they're telling teams this is the way you have to play defense and you can't shift. But look, all in all, it's good for baseball and that's important to me. I don't like it when people talk about baseball being boring or young people not liking baseball or it's too slow. I love baseball. I want the game to go on. It needs to evolve. And if you have to find ways to involve to keep young, younger viewers, younger listeners involved in the game and interested in the game, then so be it. And if you think there's going to be a direct correlation between more balls in play, higher batting averages, more guys on base, more exciting plays on the field by eliminating the shift, then so be it. I'm okay with that. I also don't mind the runner on second base uh, in extras. I I know maybe it's a little gimmicky. I will fully admit that. It's a little gimmicky. And I don't mind it because it just, I think, provides more excitement. I I really do. You instantly have a runner in scoring position. Uh, Maybe you're getting the opposite of the desired effect of sort of 
limiting the amount of extra innings teams are going to play. I mean, that's a big part of this. You know, teams were sick of having to play 15, 14, 15 inning games because of what it does to a pitching staff. And it, it makes it so much easier to score in extra innings. But I, I just think that there's, I don't know, almost a, dare I say there's something a little fun about it. I mean, when the NHL decided we're going to go three on three, uh, you know, people had an issue with that, but it, it's it's not that terrible. It's opened up the ice. It makes for fun, easy, exciting, uh, you know, offensive scoring opportunities. And so, yeah, maybe it's a little gimmicky, but I think sometimes we can fall in love with those things, and I don't mind it so much. Some other big picture stuff for the White Sox here on White Sox Weekly on the Hard Rock Casino White Sox Radio Network going into the offseason. Um, not, not a great slate of free agents coming up here in the offseason. I mean, obviously you have an all-timer in Shohei, and even with the elbow injury, um, knowing he's not going to be able to pitch next year, I, I don't think it, it matters all that much. I mean, maybe it does a little because had he been totally healthy, had he been able to finish the season pitching, and if we knew he was going to do that in 2024, I guess you know we're still potentially talking about a $600 million player, but uh, Shohei's impact on this game at this point, uh, not just what he does in the box score, but everything else, what he can do potentially for your franchise off the field is really, uh, I mean, it's franchise-altering stuff, even at his age. I think Matt Chapman's an interesting free agent to look at. Uh, Cody Bellinger, boy, he could answer some questions for the White Sox, but I think that's totally out of play. Um, considering how the White Sox don't normally like to jump into that end of the pool with a, a, a Scott Boris free agent like Cody Bellinger, who's still young and a former MVP and a former Rookie of the Year who seems to have figured things out. And we've talked about the lack of power, the lack of production from the left side of the plate uh, for the White Sox here these last couple of years. I think Cody Bellinger would answer a lot of their questions he would solve a lot of their issues probably not going to happen Josh Hader has had a tremendously impactful bounce back season even though the Padres are going to come up a little bit short here um, still think he's going to be one of the bigger free agents but if you look in that like second group and you start to look at some of the pitching and you wonder if the White Sox will jump in again you've got to be careful because we're talking about 30 ish or over 30 free agents and it's sometimes a little bit scary and we know Jerry Reinsdorf historically is not going to want to especially for those older free agent pitchers. He's not going to want to throw six, seven, eight years. Uh, but you wonder where they can maybe bargain shop a little bit. Uh, looks like Marcus Stroman, I guess, is going to opt in. So he's probably one guy you can cross off after the way the second half went for Marcus Stroman. Maybe that's not a shock. Maybe he wants to finish things out on the north side with the Cubs. But that was some of the reporting here in the last week or so that Marcus Stroman's going to opt in. You look at guys like Aaron Nola, whose numbers um, – I think, you know, you certainly worry about the age there a little and how that contract would age when you look at a dip in certain metrics for Aaron Nola, but still someone uh, who can be an impactful pitcher. Blake Snell, obviously, in the kind of year he's coming off of. Uh, Sonny Gray, Jordan Montgomery, who's not going to have any draft pick compensation tied to him. Those are some of the interesting names to watch in terms of hitters. If the White Sox aren't going to be in on Shohei and Jerry Reinsdorf already told you they weren't going to be, and we knew they wouldn't be. If they're not going to be in on Bellinger, uh, probably not in on Chapman either, but just specifically looking at the lefties, a guy like Jack Peterson, whom they've long coveted, but had a, had a tough year this year, not quite the year he had a year ago where the power numbers really dipped, or a player like Jamer Candelario who came back to Chicago and 
came to the north side, you know, looking at some of that left-handed power and where and some of that left-handed production, where they're going to get it, maybe a couple of names like that, guys, to circle and see if the White Sox are going to want to jump down that road uh, as we go deeper and deeper into the offseason. But not a, a, a like mind-blowing class of free agents, other than those few that we talked about at the very, you know, very high end going into the 2024 offseason. Before we go any further this week, let's pause 10 seconds for station identification. This is Chicago White Sox baseball. From the ballpark to the old National Bank State Street studio to you, WMVP, WSHE, HD2, Chicago. Stay out of the elements in 2024. Located on the 200 level behind home plate, the Guaranteed Rate Club offers all-inclusive food and beverage, in-seat service, and complimentary parking. Plans start at 20 games. For more info, visit whitesocks.com slash GRC or call or text 312-674-1000. That's 312-674-1000. We got more to do. We've got more baseball to talk about, more White Sox baseball to talk about, leading you up till White Sox and Padres the penultimate game of the season here in 2023 coming up on the south side tonight with a 6-10 first pitch at guaranteed rate. Don't go anywhere. We are coming right back. I'm Carmen DeFalco sitting in for Connor. You're listening to White Sox Weekly on ESPN Chicago and the Hard Rock Casino White Sox Radio Network. Follow Chicago's Home for Sports on Twitter at ESPN1000. Welcome back inside White Sox Weekly here on ESPN Chicago and the Hard Rock Casino White Sox Radio Network. I'm Carmen DeFalco filling in for Connor McKnight. Connor will be on the call for White Sox and Padres coming up on this Saturday night in just a little bit right here on your home for Sox baseball. Hey, White Sox fans, join the club tomorrow for Miller Lite Baseball and Brews. Starting at only $19, this offer includes a $1 ticket and two beers to new and expanded seating locations across the ballpark. You must be 21 and over with a valid ID. To purchase tickets, visit whitesocks.com slash brews. Let's talk about the prospects. Let's talk about the system. And when we want to do that, there are few better and more well-equipped to discuss all of the farm systems across the 30 teams. We bring in Jim Callis from MLB.com and MLB Pipeline. Jim, always a pleasure to talk to you. How are you? I'm doing good, Carmen. How are you doing? Doing very well. It's been a trying year, uh, obviously, for my beloved White Sox. I'm hoping that with some of the trades that were made at the deadline and some of the young prospects that they brought in, and then uh, hopefully they can do well. Uh, Hopefully they did well in this June's draft, and I think it looks like they're going to be picking fourth or so next June that they can do well with those picks. And um, We'll talk about some of that, but uh, tell me, please tell me, that with the trades they made and some of the young talent they brought in, that this farm system got a little bit of an injection that it badly needed. It did. I mean, when we ranked the farm systems at midseason after the draft, after the trades, we all, you know, we, we had the White Sox at 20th. So they aren't, you know, where they were. I want to say, I think we had them number one in the mid, mid 2017, kind of when they were in full rebuild mode and had traded Stale and Eaton and others in, in Quintana. Um, and then they fell to last. They were number 30 on our list by, by the middle of 2021. And, you know, so there's still work to be done, but I do think that they probably added more prospect talent between the draft and between the July trades than anyone. Uh, I, I really liked their draft. I, I thought it was a, a very deep draft. 
uh, you know, starting with Jacob Gonzalez in the first round. They got a couple of, I think, quick-moving right-handers and Grant Taylor. Once he's back from Tommy John and Seth Keener, they got a local kid, George Wolkow. And, you know, I, I think they benefited. I mean, look, the, the, the Rick Hahn, you know, at the end of the Rick Hahn-Kenny Williams regime is not going to be remembered well because of where the team is right now. But I do think, similar to what they did when they traded Sale and Eaton and Quintana, I do think Rick and Kenny did a good job of extracting maximum value for what they were trading. I mean, they weren't trading Chris Sale this right. time around. And, yeah. you know, I think the Angels kind of panicked a little bit because they were trying to do whatever they could to keep Shohei around. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the Dodgers have plenty of depth, so they were able to get some good arms from the Dodgers. And, uh, you know, even the Marlins trade, I know Jake Berger has played well for them, but I think, you know, long-term, as much as I like Jake, I think he's kind of a one-trick pony where mm-hmm. it's it's power, but there's not much on base percentage and there's not much defense. And Jake Eater has a chance to be a really good lefty. So, I mean, their, their farm system needed help, and I do think they got it. That's uh, good to hear. Uh, let's talk about a few of the guys they brought in then, and we'll start with Kiro because uh, catching has been problematic for this franchise. And, and I get it. It's hard, Jim, right? Like, it's one of the harder ones to really uh, to maybe nail, especially when you, you, know, you, you feel like you really hit the lottery if you find these two-way catchers. It's just not easy to do. But the Sox have really struggled here. What does Kiro bring to this organization right now? Yeah, you know, and I think he might even be a little bit better than White Sox fans might think because I don't. The Angels are rushing everybody. I think it's because I don't like to spend on the farm system or really anything, but like superstars at the big league level. So I think internally, like they're they're just rushing prospects. And he was only twenty this year. He didn't need to be in Double A um, after he had a really good season in, in Single A last year. He, he's played very well for Birmingham since the trade. But you know, I think he's a little bit more offensive than defensive. Um, I, I think he's a guy who's who's going to hit. I think he's going to have you know be a fifteen to twenty home run guy. You know maybe hit two seventy. And I think he's. I mean I don't think he's a Gold Glover behind the plate, but he's a catcher. And he's probably mm. an average defender. I mean we're not talking, you know Zach Collins here, mm. where you're hoping he can become an adequate catcher. I, I think I know I don't think Carroll's going to be you know a defensive stalwart, but he could definitely play catcher and he can definitely stick behind the plate and you know i think what they've set themselves up for i mean look, i mean look we're not kidding ourselves they're going to have to rebuild next year too right you know Corey lee who is another catcher they picked up has not looked great you know he's what i think four for 63 which is pretty <laughs> amazing but I, I think you know they really didn't have any long-term catching going forward i mean grandall's not going to be back you know cities of all is gone now he wasn't really solution they didn't have a lot of catching prospects I, I think you're probably going to see like a Corey Lee, Carlos Perez. You know, basically, you guys show us what you can do in 2024, right. and then Caro's probably the guy in 2025. Kopech and Cease uh, are pretty much the locks for the rotation. That leaves a lot of spaces to fill, and there are some interesting names in free agency. A lot of them are older. We know how Jerry feels, especially about older pitchers. I don't know that they're going to be in any of those sweepstakes. Maybe they fill it in uh, on the margins a little bit best they can, but from the minor league system, is this a, a perfect path here for a Nick Nostrini to actually make the big league roster out of camp next year? He could. I mean, I honestly think – I mean, he's only pitched, I want to say, 20 innings at Charlotte, and he made four starts there. I'd give him, I'd give him maybe a little bit of time in oh, AAA, okay. but I think we see him at some point next year. I mean – you know that's another need they addressed. They really did not have that much advanced, you know, upper level pitching in the system at all. I mean, probably the guy they had the most hopes for coming into the year 
with Sean Burke, and he's barely been healthy, and he wasn't good at Charlotte, and you can't really count on him. But between Mastrini and you know Jake Eater, you know who I mentioned they got from the Marlins in the Burger trade, and he you know he's coming back from Tommy John, so I'm not too concerned about his stats. They've been kind of ugly double A. I, I think you know you, you I don't even think it's an argument. I mean, Mastrini and Eater are their two best upper level pitching prospects in the system, and, and Kai Bush who came over from the Angels with Caro is probably right there behind him. So I think it's probably those three guys, maybe not out of camp, but I, I bet we see at least two of those guys by midseason, end of the season. And Jonathan Cannon, who was already in the organization, might might be kind of on that fast track too. Okay, we're talking to Jim Cowles from MLB.com and MLB Pipeline. I'm Carmen DeFalco sitting in for Connor on this week's episode of White Sox Weekly here on the Hard Rock Casino White Sox Radio Network. What do you like about Colson Montgomery? I believe you guys might even have him in your top 20 overall right now. You do have him as the number one prospect in the White Sox organization. Little of A little bit of an injury plague season to start, but what do you like about Colson Montgomery? Yeah, you know, we, we have him at number 17, and I want to say it was a bleak and then a back injury. It, it was nothing too, nothing too severe, and it, it's fine. I actually think... He might be a little underappreciated by fans, you know, White Sox fans, you know, guys who are you know prospect diehards. Because I think if he'd been healthy all season, he might have come out. You know, he's had a very good year. But I think if he'd been healthy all season, we might have seen him hit you know three hundred with twenty home runs. Mm. I've talked to scouts who've seen him since he's been healthy, since he got going. Uh, you know, I think he hit three forty five in high A. I have scouts tell me they think seventeen's too low on our list. That they think he's even better than that. I mean, he, and I'm very excited. He's the best prospect. Any organization sent to Arizona Fall League, and I'll be out there next week watching that. But, you know, it, it says something when you're a first-round pick like he was, and scouts are continually telling you he's better than we thought. Um, you know, because he was obviously a high pick <laughs> to begin with. But, you know, I think coming out of the draft, there was thought like, okay, he can hit. Um, boy, I'm sorry, it was power over hit, and we're not sure he's a shortstop. But he can really, really hit. He makes very good swing decisions. The power is legitimate, and I think he's a better defender than people thought. I, I think most people thought he was going to have to move. I mean, you know, look, it's easy. He's 6'3", he's 6'4". It's easy to say, okay, he's a big guy, he's going to outgrow the position. Right. And I'm not hearing anybody saying that now. Everybody thinks he's a legitimate shortstop. And, you know, the guy he always gets compared to because they're kind of similar build, left-handed hitting shortstops is Corey Seager. And people were saying that Corey Seager probably wasn't going to make it to the big leagues as a shortstop, and, he, and he's still playing shortstop. Hmm. Love to hear that. Uh, real quick, too, I want to ask you about some of the additions that Chris Getz has made here and um, how you, you know, if you think these are important. I think they are when you add a guy like uh, Josh Barfield coming uh, from Mike Hazen's tree, Theo's tree maybe ultimately uh, out in Arizona, some of the good things they've done with their young prospects and that young team that's a playoff team now. Brian Bannister who's been on, you know, winning organizations with Boston and San Francisco. Uh, also added Gene Watson from the Royals. But what do those additions do for Chris Getz, in your opinion, Jim? Yeah, yeah. I mean, what it does is it, it, it's not only are those quality hires, all, all three of those guys, it brings in new ideas from different organizations. You know, rather than, I mean, look, we both know a lot of people were upset that, you know, fans upset that, you know, they didn't look to anybody outside the organization. They promoted Chris. And I do think Chris is a bright and, and highly regarded executive. And I think he's taken some shots that aren't really of his doing. Like, I, I, I think Chris has a chance to be a really good GM. But with, with Josh and Brian and Gene, all those guys are very highly regarded, and you're getting them from different organizations who are going to bring in. I'm not saying you have to like overhaul everything and do everything differently, but you know you're bringing in new ideas, new concepts. Hey, this is how we did in Arizona. Hey, this is how 
you know, you know, we did it with the Red Sox and the Giants. I mean, you know, I, I think Brian Bannister is, you know, one of the more interesting pitching minds hmm. out there. You know, Gene Watson's been, you know, he was with the Angels a little bit, but he's been with the Royals for, for the most part. And, I mean, he was part of the scouting staff that, that helped win, you know, World Series and back-to-back titles. And, uh, you know, I just think, you know, bringing in, you know, people from other organizations who've had success, like, that makes a lot of sense in any organization, especially if you're struggling as much as the White Sox are right now. My team's been out of it since Cinco de Mayo, so I'm cheering for the Orioles. Uh, I'm hoping World Series champs and then Jackson Holiday breaks camp as a 20-year-old next year. What do you think? What do you think? <laughs> to the defending he, champs. He I mean, Jackson Holiday's that good. He might. He might. I mean, the, the big thing you're going to have to root for now as a White Sox fan is the draft lottery. Yeah. That, it, that, that's the scary thing now. You know, as you know, two years ago, they have, I think, I think you said this. Like, I think fourth, fourth right? Yeah. In the draft now right it's now. a lottery, yeah. Um, but now, I mean, you can you can slide a little bit. There's no guarantee that you're gonna you're gonna um, you know get that pick. I mean, I find myself I haven't done it yet, but like in the off season they have a great site tankathon for all the leagues. Yeah, you yeah. can sim sim the draft lottery. And I'm, I'm just clicking it right now. I love See, it. I have the White Sox dropping to sixth when when I, when I oh, clicked no, it. Oh no, stop so, it! Stop. Yeah. So like and like look, I mean, this year's draft or next year's draft won't be as good as this year's. But you had two teams in the Rangers and Twins. Who jumped up in a draft where there were five number one overall pick type talents, and they both jumped into the top five and yeah. tore Oakland. I mean, not that you feel sorry for their ownership, but, but Oakland, you know, had is the worst record in baseball, and they dropped all the way to six. So, like, it can happen. There you go. That's that lottery now. Hey, listen, uh, Jimmy, it's always great catching up. Love your insights. Uh, you're the best. Thanks for joining us, and have a great weekend. Yeah, you too, Carmen. Anytime. Thanks. That's Jim Callis, MLB.com, MLB Pipeline. We got more to come leading you up to the pregame. White Sox and Padres on the south side. This is White Sox Weekly on the Hard Rock Casino White Sox Radio Network. It's simple. The ESPN Chicago app. Yes, it is simple. Make sure you have it. Catch up on all the great original podcasts and content, all the shows. Monday through Friday, Saturday and Sunday, never miss a thing. Well, it's been a pleasure sitting in doing White Sox Weekly. I don't know what took so long. The year's over. But as a diehard White Sox fan, it was fun to at least do this today and look ahead to the future and hopefully brighter times because this year has been a tough one to take and a tough one to stomach for White Sox fans everywhere. But changes are happening. Changes are coming. And we spent a lot of this show today talking about some of the different things that Chris Getz has done and hopefully the direction of this franchise uh, changing directions in the near future with some high draft picks now, and, of course, some of the young players they added to their system via the midseason trades. Two games to go against the San Diego Padres, and then 2023 will be in the books. Connor McKnight is coming up to do the play-by-play with DJ. Brendan Riley's going to handle your pre and post on this wonderful Saturday late afternoon, early evening. Have a good one, everybody. Thank you to Brendan Riley, the executive producer of White Sox Baseball. Thanks to Jim Callis from MLB.com, Scott Merkin from MLB.com, Jonathan Hood, and Connor McKnight for being part of the fun and for joining me today. Sox and Padres, the penultimate game of the season coming up next. Have a great weekend, everybody.